Good afternoon, everyone, again. The Nicene Creed was a little tough. I didn't think it was going to be all out of sync, but uh, forgive me for rushing through it. Um, today's text, as Prom read, is from John 21. This is a, uh, I wouldn't say my favorite passage, but one of my favorite passages. This is probably one of the top, top five. Top three, maybe, top but, uh, and it's special to me because it, it really hits home uh, for me, right? And how God has uh, done his wonderful work in us, right? And so especially for me. As we uh, prepare our hearts to hear the message, let's just turn to God for help. God, who is here today, who is here now, we look to you for help. Help to speak and help to hear. God, in your word, you gave manna for your people, some million Israelites in the wilderness you provided for each one. God, all of us here were varied and different. We come with different needs, and we pray that you would supply. We trust that the supply of heaven does not run out, and we pray that you would give to us our hearts, that you would answer our hearts, that you would see what we need, and that we would come to you and return to you. Come give us manna for today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, there's a scene in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which has always been moving to me. If you know the popular story of C.S. Lewis, uh, it's, it's this kid's book. It's written about this magical world called Narnia, and it's ruled by this king named Aslan, who has four, uh, and there's four kids, four siblings, right? Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy. And they enter to Narnia through this wardrobe. And if you know the story, you know that Edmund... Uh, aligns himself with the villain of the story, right? The wicked white witch. Edmund betrays Narnia, he betrays Aslan, and he betrays his siblings. And his crime deserves death. Except if you know the story, you know that the great king, Aslan, substitutes himself for Edmund and dies in his place. And it seems sort of like a good Friday for our Bibles, Right? The great king is captured, he's humiliated, mocked, he's jeered, he's tortured, and killed. And then in the scene, sort of like Easter, the lion comes back to life, and Aslan lives and has all the makings of a good story. Meaning, at this point in this story, good has triumphed over evil, right? Narnia has been rescued, Aslan is victorious, and all the people are well on their way to living happily ever after, right? All the people, that is, except Edmund. Because if that's all you've got, right, if you ended the story right there, you might ask yourself, whatever happened to Edmund? You might say, sure, Aslan paid for his failures, but does Edmund live out the rest of his days sort of in the shadows, right? Does Edmund live out the rest of his days sort of in a way, in a way that he comes to church feeling awkward and embarrassed in social settings? Is he pardoned by Aslan but forever going to be looked down by his brothers and sisters, Does he live out the rest of his days with a guilt he can't shake and a shame he can't lose, sort of wearing a scarlet F for the rest of his life, sort of a perpetual reminder that he's a failure? But thankfully, we're not left to wonder what happens to Edmund because Lewis, he includes a simple paragraph in the story. And let me read you this paragraph. When the other children woke up the next morning, the first thing they heard was that their brother had been rescued and brought into the camp late last night and was at that moment with Aslan. 
As soon as they had breakfast, they all went out, and they saw Aslan and Edmund walking together in the dewy grass, apart from the rest of the court. There is no need to tell, and no one ever heard what Aslan was saying, but it was a conversation which Edmund never forgot. As the others drew nearer, Aslan turned to meet them, bringing Edmund with him. Here is your brother, he said, and there is no need to talk to him about what is past. Edmund shook hands with each of the others and saying to each one in turn, I'm sorry. And everyone said, that's all right. And everyone wanted to say something to make it quite clear that they're all friends again. Something ordinary, something natural, and of course, no one could think of anything in the world to say. You see, it's a simple paragraph, but it's all that we needed to know that Edmund is not only rescued, but he's redeemed, he's restored, and he's reinstated. Right? So much so that if you read the books, the subsequent chapters in the following books, Edmund has a throne and he's a prince over Narnia. Now, why do I share this? I say this because when you get to the end of John's gospel, right, there's an argument to be made, and it's a right argument that the right place to end the book of John is John chapter 20. Right? We just covered the series, and we've heard that, right? that the right place would probably be John chapter 20. And here's why. If you look in the Bible, in John 20, you see the superscription over the heading, and it says, the purpose of this book. In fact, John says, I wrote this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you may have life in his name. So when you get to John 20, Jesus, the great king, right? he's been captured, he's been mocked, tortured, killed, but he's risen from the dead. Right? Good has triumphed over evil, the world has been rescued, and everyone is on their way to living happily ever after. Everyone, that is, except Peter. Because if that's all you got, you and I might be left wondering, whatever happened to Peter? You know Peter, the disciple who told Jesus the night he was arrested that he was willing to die for Jesus, who told Jesus that even if all the others fell away, he would never fall away. The same Peter who that very night denied Jesus three times, that is to say, I swear to God, I don't know who he is. I don't belong to him, I don't believe him, I don't follow him, I don't love, I don't have anything to do with this Jesus. If all you have is John 20, then you might ask, whatever happened to Peter. Sure, Jesus paid for his failures, but would he live out the rest of his days sort of in the shadows? Right? Would he be awkward and embarrassed when he came to church? Would he be pardoned by Jesus and looked down by his friends, his brothers and sisters? Will Peter live out the rest of his days with a guilt he can't shake and a shame he can't lose? Sort of wearing a scarlet D for the rest of his life. But we're not left to wonder what happens to Peter, because John includes chapter 21. And like Aslan with Edmund, we have Jesus with Peter. And not just for Peter, right? But for any one of you who, have, who has known to, known what it's like to have blown it big time, right? Any of you who have known what it is to be a failed follower of Jesus Christ, any of you who have felt a guilt that you can't shake and a shame that you can't lose, any of you who have been marked by a moment of your past, like a big letter that scars you for the rest of your life. And if you've ever known what it is to make bold 
grand professions of faith in a place that's safe like this, but it crumbles when the moment actually came. You see, Peter the rock, he crumbled. And if you know anything of what it is to find that when the moment came, your love for Jesus, it caved, it crumbled, it proved to be too weak and too small. Then like me, you also will be glad for John 21. Because in this chapter, we're going to see Jesus, he redeems, he restores, and he reinstates his failed followers. If you look in your text, the conversation begins at the Sea of Galilee. And what you find at the Sea of Galilee are seven disciples, right? And Peter's one of them. And Peter says to the other six, let's go fishing, right? And so the other six and Peter, they go along, they go fishing. And they're out that night, they go fishing, and all night they catch nothing, right? After a frustrating and futile night of fishing, at the break of day, there's this figure standing about a football field away, and they can't quite make out who the person is. And this figure from the shore yells out, Boys, have you caught anything? This figure goes on to say, they reply, no. And the figure goes on to say, I'm sure if you cast your net to the other side, you'll catch some fish. Perhaps you can't do worse than zero, right? You can't catch less fish than zero. So they take the net and they throw it on the other side. And as soon as they do, they feel this tension in the net. It feels like the boat itself is going to sink. When all was said and done, the net was bursting with fish, 153 to be exact. Now at that moment, you can't help but wonder if some of the disciples sort of felt a deja vu. Right? You can be sure that at least the Apostle John felt a little deja vu, right? Felt this was all eerily familiar to them. You see, this exact thing happened three years earlier. Same spot, same sea, same sequence of events. You, read, you can read in Luke 5. In fact, three years earlier, Peter, James, and John are out in this very sea, out for a night of fishing. And again, they've caught nothing. And when someone appeared to them from the shore, and that man told them, try throwing your nets one more time. And when they listened and obeyed, a second boat had to be hauled in to haul it back. And the figure on that shore turned out to be a carpenter from Nazareth named Jesus who told them to drop their nets and follow him because thereafter he will make them fishers of men. See, you can imagine all of that coming back to John's mind. It's why in verse 7, John screams out, It's the Lord. Right? He tells it to Peter, It's the Lord. And Peter hardly, it says, Peter hardly has time to put on his clothes and he swims toward Jesus. And when they get to the shore, here's what happened. In verse 9 it says, John 21 verse 9, it says, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. When they got on a shore, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Now, if John felt deja vu in the boat, now it's Peter's turn to feel deja vu on the land. Now, for Peter, this is becoming all eerily familiar. You see, the last time Peter stood by a charcoal fire, 
It was the lowest moment of his life. The last time Peter stood by a charcoal fire, it was moments he deeply regretted. Moments he hated himself for. Moments he wishes he could take back. And moments he would never want to think again. In fact, you can read it uh, about those moments in three chapters before in John 18, 15 to 25. John sort of puts it mildly. Mark in his, uh, Mark gives some more details, right? Mark, who probably got his uh, account firsthand from Peter, Mark tells us that on that night, Peter swore and evoked a curse on himself, saying, let heaven strike me dead. I do not know this person. That's the way he spoke at the charcoal fire. And I'll read you that portion real quick, just to put that in context. John 18, verses 15 to 25. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. So, I wonder, for us, do we know what it is to fail colossally? Right? Do we know what it feels like to blow it in biblical proportions? To break promises, to not keep your word, to find out when the moment came, your love was too weak, it was too small. Perhaps you can very quickly come back to your own charcoal fire. Perhaps it wouldn't take much to go back to that choice, that decision, that compromise, that betrayal. That place you went, that thing you saw, that thing you said, that thing you did, that place of deep regret for you. That moment you would never want to be reminded of. And here's the thing. Jesus is the one who sets up the charcoal fire. You see, Jesus is essentially recreating the scene of the crime, right? Jesus has essentially recreated Peter's worst moment. So let me ask you, what would you imagine if Jesus was standing by your worst moment, right? If Jesus was standing by that awful moment, that awful decision, that awful season, what do you imagine the face of God would look like? Right? What do you imagine the voice of God would sound like? Perhaps you see him, and in your mind's eye, you see that face so frustrated, so disgusted, so disappointed, perhaps so distant. Perhaps you hear that voice in your mind and plays like a soundtrack over and over again, and it can be summed up as so hateful, so hopeless. Well, I'll tell you, on the authority of John 21, if it is so, it's not Jesus. That's not what Jesus sounds like. 
Beloved, that's not what he looks like. You see, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus says in verse 12, Come, have breakfast. Now, I don't know why that strikes me uh, so much, but can you imagine if this God is who he says he is? If the God of the Bible is who this God is, then the God who shows up at your worst moment is a resurrected, sinner-saving, death-defeating, world-ruling king who makes breakfast for his failed followers. A God who meets you in your worst hour with hot breakfast. And after you spent your nights betraying this God, he meets you in the morning with hot breakfast. See, I don't see that God in my mind and my imagination, but if that's the case, then the Bible will tell me it's a wicked God of my own imagination. You see, the real God is a God who meets you in the morning and says, come and eat and have breakfast. A God, during his life, it was not above him to stoop down and wash his disciples' feet, including the one who's going to betray him, including the one who's going to deny him. A God who is now, having conquered all that there is to conquer, ruling over all that there is to rule over, that everyone should worship him, all the people. Every praise should come to him, everything. He, it's not above him to make sure that his disciples who spent a night futile fishing, caught nothing, came home to see hot breakfast waiting for them. We see, then when they finished breakfast, like Aslan met with Edmund, Jesus is going to have a moment with Peter. In verse 15, if you look at it, he takes Peter back to before he was Peter. You see, Peter, that's the name that Jesus gave him. Simon, son of John, that's how he first met him. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Because after all, that was Peter's boast that night, right? Even if they all fall away, I will never fall away. Even if they all deny you, I will die for you. So now comes the question, by the charcoal fire, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? But now, all that swagger, that self-confidence is gone. So now he can't go, of of course, Jesus, of course I love you. What kind of question is that? No, because his actions have betrayed him. But it's interesting, nor does he say, no, Jesus, I don't love you. Instead, he ekes out the best he can. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I do. Because now it's not anymore that Peter is so sure of himself. Lord, you know what's in this heart. You know that I love you. You know, despite the betrayal, the actions that were committed, you know what abides in this heart. Second time the question comes, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus asked it a third time. And that third time stung. You see, that third one hurt. Because the last time he was asked about a relationship with Jesus by a charcoal fire, three times, the answer was very different. No, 
no, no. I don't, I don't, I don't. So to be asked a third time by the charcoal fire, that one hit close to home. That one hurt. That one wounded him. In fact, verse 17, it says, Peter was grieved because Jesus asked a third time, do you love me? Peter responded, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So what, what's going on here? Is Jesus rubbing Peter's nose in it? Because Jesus is the one that recreated the entire scene, right? Is Jesus out to wound him? Is Jesus being mean and out to hurt him? Because that's exactly what happens. He's wounded. He's hurt. The text says he's grieved. And I suppose no more hurt and no more wounded than that from a surgeon. What do I mean? A surgeon cuts you, right? A surgeon wounds you. A surgeon makes you bleed. But oddly enough, when all is done, you hug that same surgeon, right? You thank that same surgeon. You love and you cherish that surgeon. Because at the end of the day, the purpose of those wounds was not to hurt you. It was to heal you. Right? The purpose of those cuts was not to end you, but it was to make you whole. So it is, Jesus is wounding Peter. And I imagine it hurt like hell. When Jesus does this to you, it hurts like hell. But in that moment, you have nothing left but to believe he's hurting to restore you, to make you whole. In fact, do you see what Jesus actually accomplished through these wounds? Do you see what he did for Peter? He's recreated the moment for Peter's worst failure, but has now given him an entirely redeemed way of living it. You see, three years ago, I called you to be fisher of men. And today, I'm still calling you, Peter, to feed my sheep, tend my flocks, and feed my lamb. Because, Peter, my plan for your life is not to sit the bench or to wait, wait on the sidelines till glory comes. You see, you will not spend the rest of your days in the shadows. You will not live out the rest of your life awkward and depressed every time you come into church. You will not just be pardoned by me and looked down by your brothers and sisters. You will not live out your life with a guilt you can't shake and a shame you can't lose. Because right here, at this charcoal fire, I'm redeeming you. I'm restoring you. I'm reinstating you. Because I'm not done with you, Peter. It's as if Jesus says, a lot has happened in these last three years. Peter, a lot of failures, a lot of flaws, but nothing has changed in my intention for you. You follow me. Like the first time when he has called you and me, right church, a lot has happened. A lot of failures, a lot of flaws, a lot of charcoal fires. But the, this thing has not changed. Follow me. In fact, follow me until you too go home gloriously. I'll read you what a pastor named Ray Ortland said about the time you and I go home. He says, you and I can be ready for that final moment. How Jesus tells us, follow me and you'll be ready. Your glorious death will not be one moment of rare heroism. Your glorious death will be just Another step in following Jesus after a lifetime of following Jesus.
Church, what's the one thing that we can take away from this passage? And I believe the one thing that we can is to see that Jesus does all the action in this passage. You see, Jesus is the one that orchestrated the futile night. Right? He's the one that issues the commands. He's the one that appears on the shores, that has a miraculous catch, cooks a breakfast, initiates the conversations, asks the questions, restores Peter. Jesus, he does it all. And as I can tell, the only thing that Peter does in this whole passage is that he throws himself in Jesus' direction. When he saw it was the Lord, he threw himself to the water and headed towards Jesus. And what I want to suggest is that that's the one thing that we ought to do. Tonight, let us dive, let us fly, let us flop. If at best, all that we can do, let us collapse towards Jesus. Let us run towards Jesus. And if you say that, Joel, you don't know what I've done, then I would say back to you, Jesus does. Peter was surprised by Peter's failures. And it's crazy. You and I will be surprised by the depth of unbelief that resides in this heart. We can't believe the depth of evil that this heart is capable of. You see, I'm always surprised what I find there. But Jesus, he's not surprised. In fact, here's how J.I. Packard says it. And there's tremendous relief in knowing He says, there's tremendous relief in knowing his love to me is based at every point of prior knowledge of my worst about me. I'll read it again. His love for you is based at every point of prior knowledge of the worst about you. See, Peter was surprised about what happened that night by the charcoal fire, but Jesus wasn't. He had told Peter about it. There are depths of evil and sin in you that would shock you, but it would never surprise Jesus. In fact, he knew it when he called you. He knows it when he restores you and reinstates you. And he is the one that's going to bring you to the end. But you may say, my love for Jesus is small. It's weak. Jesus knows that too. You see, a Puritan named Richard Baxter, he said this, Don't pour over endlessly at your heart trying to discern whether or not there's love for God there. It would be wiser for you to think upon the infinite friendliness of God. Baxter goes on to say, Don't go on spending all your days staring at your heart. It's just a deep black well, but rather spend more time staring at God. Beloved, you have permission to stop staring at your sin and you have permission to start staring at your Savior. You see, He's greater than our sin. He has to be. Otherwise, we're all dead and we have no hope. You see, your love for Jesus, it's weak. It is small. And Jesus knows that. And the truth is, He knows you love Him. I read this one time uh, somewhere about Spurgeon. He had uh, this woman in his congregation. And this woman told him, uh, Pastor Spurgeon, I don't have any faith at all. I look at my life and I can't find any love for Jesus. Spurgeon didn't argue with her. 
He didn't quarrel her. He simply went and got a sheet of paper and he wrote on it, I do not love Jesus Christ. And he drew a line and he said to her, sign this. And the lady said, no, I'm not signing that. No, no, sign it. You don't love Jesus. No way, I can't sign that. Just go ahead and sign it. No, God knows that's not true. And that's exactly what Spurgeon wanted to hear. God knows that's not true. You see, you do love Jesus. However small it is, however weak, Jesus knows. And let the measure of it no longer be some cocky, self-confident bravado in and of ourselves. You see, Jesus, you know everything. And Lord, you know that somewhere deep inside this heart, there is love for you. Well, we may say, what good can come from my life, right? Jesus says, if you love me, then feed my sheep. You see, the rest of your days is not for bench sitting, for sideline waiting. The rest of your days is not meant to just wait and watch. No, you demonstrate your love for Jesus by giving yourself for the good of other failed followers of Jesus, just like yourself. What will you be doing, doing to, until he comes? You will feed his sheep. You will give yourself to the care and nurture of other failed followers. You will spend the rest of the, your days fishing for men and feeding the flock all the way until glory comes. So what does Jesus want to do with failed followers? Like Peter, like you, and like me? Well, John 21 says he wants to redeem us by our charcoal fire. He wants to restore us, and he wants to reinstate us. He wants to use us to fish for men, to use us to feed the flock, to keep following him all the way until he calls us gloriously home. Let's pray. Father, for some of us, for many of us, our sins are huge and the vision of our Savior is so small. Father, would you reorient our eyes? Would we refocus our eyes through your Spirit to see how big our Savior is, how great he is? And would you help us to see the mission that you have called us to feed your sheep? to tend to the flock, to feed the land. May you find us worthy in Christ to do the work that you've called us to do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.